This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. We are out in the bucolic, beautiful countryside in some sort of right next to the King Wine Estate, uh, south of Eugene, Oregon. And I'm at Alesong Brewing and Blending. And Matt and Brian have joined me. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Van Wick, Brian Coombs. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me out here. It's been, a, it's what a beautiful, beautiful location. Yeah. We Sit, picked a good day. Sitting nice outside on the patio. There's animals, farm animals off in the distance, wine grapes over the hill. We're enjoying some beautiful uh, mixed fermentation beer right now. You all focus on barrel-aged beers, beers aged in wood, both on the sour and the clean side. We're going to talk a lot about that today, and I'm excited to dive into both of those things with you. And, uh, you know, as I was, I was checking it out, it's like um, you still have won nine GABF medals, right, between uh, the time you founded and, and today. Um, a lot in that sour and mixed uh, Brett beer, mixed fermentation category, but also also clean barrel aged beer as well. Uh, we're going to talk about how you do that. That's uh, it's going to be a fun thing to talk about. Before we do that, for nearly thirty years, G and D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. G and D stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. G and D also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in house team of installers and engineers with thirty years of real world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System Design experts today at gdchillers.com. Yeah, we're actually out in GD Chillers country here in Oregon. I mean, they're... Uh, they're Heck yeah, we have two of those. You do? Yeah. Yeah. And our original warehouse was walking distance from where they build them, so it's lucky. They can fix things real quick. Yeah, that's great. Fantastic. We've, all, of course have appreciated their long-term support of the podcast. Also, still emptying those overflowing waste bins full of low fills, crushed and damaged cans, or under-carbonated beer every canning day, it's time to fill like a pro. Email contact us at probrew.com for more information on ProFill can fillers from ProBrew. ProFill can fillers use rotary, true counter-pressure gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute with less than 30 parts per billion DO pickup and less than 1% product waste at the filler. Stop wasting perfectly good beer. Email ProBrew at contactusatprobrew.com today. ProBrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a ProMock brand. So Matt, where was that moment where beer clicked for you? Were you, and then how did that turn into a, that, that one question that everyone faces where I want to do this for a career and then how did it move from career then to, Hey, let's you know start our own brewery out here. Yeah. So I've been at this, uh, collecting a paycheck for 21 years now. So I've been doing a little bit and, um, I started after college as a science teacher. Um, and it, I was in the Chicago suburbs, um, and that was fine. It was a nice career. Um, but I was starting to drink um, some imported beers because there wasn't that much craft beer. And this is the late 90s. And um, I started a homebrew with a friend. And suddenly that's when it clicked when I was homebrewing and realizing how beer was made. Um, you know, 
having a science related uh, degree, glycolysis and cellular respiration, that's not very exciting. <laughs> and I didn't even know right, what, it, what right. it was for until I discovered fermentation and yeah. made my own beer. And then I said, that was when the light bulb went on. And I'm like, oh, this is crazy. Glycolysis is cool. I'm sure Brian will think that's funny because he's got a science degree and has done biology and chemistry for his whole career. Um, so anyway, that, that's when I realized the science that I had been studying was cool um, in, in fermentation. You found a and value add for I that did, science. I did. And so I got into homebrewing a little bit and got into finding some craft beer and things like that. And long story short, I was having some time off as a teacher in summer break, winter break, spring break. And I went into a small brew pub in the west suburbs of Chicago and asked a now friend of mine um, if I could just help him wash kegs, mash in, do the grunt work, whatever it took. And suddenly I realized, wow, someone pays you for this? You're going to make a career out of brewing? It just it kind of blew my mind. And so I would help every break I had. Um, and it was just a hobby. It was kind of a big homebrew system right. pretty much. Um, and I started to uh, always go there whenever I had a chance to help him make beer. And uh, finally he said, you know, you're working harder than my assistant and I pay him. I just give you some beer now and again or lunch at the, at the pub. And he said, would you like a job? And because I was working on my master's in teaching, because I was trying to make it a career, um, I said no. But after I kept coming back, um, it was the right time in my life to be able to say, yeah, let's just try it. And so the initial plan was to be an assistant brewer for this guy at a small little brew pub um, for two years and then go back to teaching. Um, and then before you know it, I'm the head brewer of another small pub. And then that place closes down. I go to another pub. And then before you know it, I'm in Oregon brewing at Oakshire Brewing. And um, he left out a uh, GABF small brewer of the year in there, oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We won some. Uh, in 2006, I was a small brew pub brewer of the year at um, uh, GABF. And it was certainly a different time in our industry. Right. Um, uh, I don't want to say it was easier to win awards, but there were less entries. Let's just say that. Sure, sure. Um, and that kind of put me on the map as a, a professional brewer and got me noticed for, for different jobs. And it, it sort of jump-started my career um, to be able to to uh, do what I wanted to do rather than just be an assistant brewer washing kegs. Sure. So that's where I, that's, that's kind of how I got into it and stuck with it. Where'd you start, Brian? Yeah, so I went to U of O here in Eugene and my senior year, I was kind of on the track to graduate in, in three years and then I got a scholarship. And so my fourth year ended up being pretty easy. Um, I just had a few classes working in the lab and then I was like really getting into craft beer because this is in um, 2010 when Nkasi here in town was getting really big and then Oakshire as well was getting big. And it's like getting hard alcohol in Oregon is difficult because you have to go to a liquor store and then close early, whatever. So in college, everyone drank beer and it was like in Eugene, there was this beer culture and it's like, we didn't really, we kind of skipped the like, oh, we're going to get suitcases of Bush Light. It's like, oh, we're going to get 22s of total domination IPA. That's like what we did in college. You so are so spoiled. Like, <laughs> you are yeah, so, we were, as the old we guy of the rotten. team, you're spoiled. Yeah, we were totally spoiled. And then like places like the beer stein. And I was just, I was just kind of in love with, with sure, trying all sure. these new beers and, and beers from all over the world and all over the U S. And then I really fell in love with the craft beer industry. Um, but I had like, like I said, I had an easy spring term of my senior year and Matt was, or Oakshire was doing some sort of event at their brewery. And I kind of cornered Matt, literally cornered Matt. And Brian's like, intense. He did. He did corner me. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, Hey, I have, I'm getting my chemistry degree. 
you, I know you guys don't have a lab. Like, can I come and volunteer and, and start like a quality control lab for you? I've already pitched it. I'd already pitched it to my chemistry advisor that they were going to give me credit for it before I had even talked to any brewery. Um, and Matt said no, but his assistant said yes. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> so, I think to correct you, I think I said, go ask Joe. I don't, I don't okay, want to be the parent. Okay, that's what it was. Um, so then I was there for, for my last term, um, kind of just helping. And you got a free lab at the, at the brewery from a college kid that just wanted to set it up for totally, you? Totally. Yeah. Oh why why would I say no? That was dumb. <laughs> yeah. And, and I just like totally fell in love with it. And I was like, I think I was only supposed to be there a couple hours a week and I was there like every moment I possibly could. And then. Matt and I became friends. Matt took me down to Boonville and then I left, um, Oregon to, I moved to Michigan. I had a, um, why I got my scholarship at school. I got a fellowship through the department of defense to do alternative energy research for a lab there. Um, and the whole time I would like fly and meet them at GABF. And I, uh, I came back for Eugene beer week. I went to Saver with them. Um, and I just stayed really close with them. And then when my obligation was up there after two years, um, it was like perfect timing cause they were growing and wanted to hire a full-time QA manager. So then I came back and did that. And then that was kind of when I really fell in love with barrel aged beer and Matt and I, well, Matt is like, he left this part of out of his bio too, but he's kind of one of the OG barrel aged brewers in the, in the country. Well, I, I, fo Ashman. I followed some really good people. You know, I was at Flossmore station and Todd Ashman, um, yeah. was, was right there with goose Island making bourbon barrel aged beer. So right. I, I learned a lot that way. And, um, um, Brian was gonna, uh, allude to this is I started the barrel aging program at Oakshire and kind of had a real passion for that. And, and Brian did too, and did a lot of the work there while he was working there. Yeah. I was working swing shift. So I would, that's when we had space to do all the barrel work and we just like, I just was totally in love with it. And then the more questions I asked about like, well, why are we doing this process or what is the specific seller process or how are we taking care of our barrels? The answer I often got from, from brewers was like, well, I don't know. You just throw it in a barrel and kind of forget about it. And I was not satisfied at all with that answer. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so I, when I left Oakshire, I started working at King Estate next door because I was like, well, wineries have been doing this forever. They definitely know. And that just like, I mean, I was only there for like seven months and it was just, I learned more in that seven months than probably, you know, five years of brewing of just like how the, A, the cellar works, but then B, just like taking care of oak and managing oak and all those flavor profiles of it. Um, so that was kind of my, and then at that time, that's when, we had always been kind of talking about wanting to start a brewery, Matt and I, and then we just never, it was like, oh, do we do a brew pub in a ski town or do we whatever, whatever, whatever. And then it was just kind of like, no, let's focus. We both love barrel aged beer. Let's focus on barrel aged beer. The reason why barrel aged beer isn't a big part of other breweries programs is because they're too busy making cans of IPA and Pilsner. Sure. So let's just like. The beers that people buy. Right. So yeah. it's probably a dumb business move, but let's just like take that out of the equation and just totally focus <laughs> and, on barrel aged beer. And, and in 2015, when he hit me up with this idea of making a 100% barrel aged brewery, I'm like, yeah, be crazy. Like, that, you can't make money doing that. No. So I think I told you no probably several times. Yeah. Yep. And then my, my brother, our third business partner was, um, working for investment firms in Sonoma that was like kind of helping wineries, like really high end, um, wineries that are all focused totally on DTC and their club. And they, he, um, kind of took, took what we wanted to do and then was like, okay, well in wine, this is what they do to make it like, so we got to focus on a club. We got to have this experience. Like, obviously the product has to be really good, but you really got to focus on the experience. So that's what we, we try to do here. And that was kind of a quick 
story on how we started Ailsong. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> sure. And, and you have absolutely built that very winery-like experience here from specific tasting experiences that seem to you know mirror those kinds of tasting experiences that someone might have at a winery. And, and I mean, just the location out here, of course, adjacent to a large winery, uh, creating another destination that people can come totally. to out in the country. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, I'm jealous of having 22s of total domination in college. Yeah, it, I mean, was, it, was, it was like Pete's <laughs> Wicked Ale and Burt Grant's Scottish Ale, you know, for me back in the day. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I can't, let's talk about, uh, you know, some of those barrel aged beers, but before we do that, looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough, think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out with old orchards, craft concentrate blends. Even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old orchard is based in the greater grand rapids, Michigan area, also known as beer city, USA and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, Hey Nano Brewers, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, is soon offering their dry ale and lager yeasts in flexible 100-gram packaging. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, Visit fermentus.com. So let's talk about, uh, you know, this idea. You decide to create a brewery focused on barrel-aged beers. Where do you start? Well, what was the, well, you know, this is what, 2015-ish when you're probably kicking the idea yeah. around. Um, you know, the beer world looked a little bit different then. There was a lot of optimism certainly still there around, you know, mixed culture beers, about sour beers, you know, and this, a lot of budding, hey, we can make these things. I mean, we're still, um, you know, in, influenced by like you know chad jacobson's brewing 100 percent brett beers and you know there was still this like hey we can do this you know as you guys formulate the idea for ale song uh what was gonna what were, what was the initial beer approach and and how were you gonna go about doing this what were you gonna make and how are you gonna make it relevant to people yeah i think when we started um we had a plan to um uh you know focus on barrel aged beers and our mission from day one has been to elevate the way that beers perceived and experienced and we want to just take away some of that blue collar uh, mentality of beer not that it's bad i'll drink a pbr if you crack one now i will drink it but we're doing something different so we wanted to kind of raise that level it's, i agree it's not that beer has to be one thing or the no. other it can be all of these there's things. a beer for every occasion when i go on the river with my parents back in iowa it's a coors light and it tastes good but when i'm sitting out here in wine country in in uh, southwest of eugene it's in a stemware and it's um you know fermented in oak barrels but you know, we started out wanting to focus on oak, but we knew that just like a winery, it takes a long time to get your product to, to have some cash flow. And so we started out with um, uh, mostly barrel-aged beers, but but we also made some that were non-barrel-aged beers. We had some Saison, some other Belgian um, beers, some Abbey beers. Um, we did do some kettle soured beers that were a little quicker sour and use fruit in those. Um, what we wanted to do is have a, in, we called it an instant gratification beer. I think Brian came up with that. Yeah, term. there was this, there, we wanted the club from the beginning and that was like, we called it a mailing list at that point, but it, we wanted the club idea from the beginning and we were like, okay, so there's so many times, like, cause I was a part of several wine clubs and my brother Doug had been really intimate with that. And Matt is also in wine clubs. And it was just like, if you get the shipment of these awesome, cabs right you're like well i can't drink any of these now and i want to drink some now 
And then, so we kind of took that as like, okay, well, that's why it's always awesome to have in that analogy, you want to have some like, you know, some white wine or some rosé or something in there that you can drink now. So we're like, all right, let's do for every release that we club release, we do that's five or four beers. Let's have one of them be just like a elevated using whole fruit or a Belgian style that we really like that people aren't really making of. So we did like doubles quads and belt with beers and things. Um, and it was like, okay, that's going to be our instant gratification beer where it's like, cool, this is part of your shipment and you can, you know, it's lower price point, sure, drink these sure. now. And then here's our barrel age beers. And then we went away from that because everyone was buying more of our barrel age beers. <laughs> and yep. and I, I vividly remember, have this memory of doing a tasting in Portland and talking to somebody that had never heard of us. And I was just like, yeah, we focus almost exclusively on barrel age beers, but I'm sampling you three of our non barrel age beers today. And I was just like, this light bulb was like, why don't we just focus on this? And we were self-distributing and we we're like, we're carrying a case into a, into a market. We should get it the was price a, point. Yeah. A $50 case. And, and, and yeah, we decided I, the last beer we made that was um, non barrel aged was a, a wit beer. We called it ale song white. And, you know, obviously Allagash White is the, the in our country, the, the gold standard. And we wanted the, to, the bronze standard. The, the, yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I was a World <laughs> Beer Cup, too. And, <laughs> and too I did not judge that category, just so you know. Uh, and we just thought that'll be I our, did make that same joke to uh, Rob to and Rob. Jason a few, a few weeks ago. Nice. Yes. The bronze standard. Uh, yeah, so we, we thought that would be great. Well, no one wanted a wit beer from us that was not aged in a barrel. And, you know, it just wasn't moving as right, fast. Right. They knew who we were because we set our brand up, uh, how we set it up. And yeah, it, so then we, and then we were just like, you know, these, these, these quicker beers are also just so time consuming and we're not getting the margin on them that we want. And it was just like, let's scratch this. Let's just focus sure, sure. exclusively. We were doing 75% barrel aged beer and then we're like, let's just go all in. And it's been great so far. And it really enables us to just like, hone. I mean, our process is so time consuming and so labor intensive. It's like, it's really hard to do a quick turn ale at the same time as you're trying to juggle all the moving pieces of just one mixed culture fruit beer. So then what were some of the like uh, key pillars of the program then? You know, you, you, what, what were going to you know be the major beers then that you're going to hang this program on? Well, we're, we're still very influenced by the Belgian tradition and, uh, you know, from Saison's to Lambic beers. Um, we love to drink them. Um, I love the history of that. Um, and so um, we make kind of three threads of beers, sort of what we call our farmhouse beers that are, um, you know, mostly Brett ferment. I mean, all Brett fermented. Maybe they're not mixed culture, though, as far as lactobacillus. Um, they may have some acidity. And then we have our fruited sour line of beers. Um, they won't always have fruit in them, but most of them are using Oregon grown fruit in them. And then we have our spirits barrel age program, you know, the, the clean side. And that uses any kind of spirit barrels, bourbon, gin, tequila, rum. Um, and those are our three main threads of, of what we're going for. When you, so uh, let's talk about how you started creating recipes then to, you know, to build these. Where did you start? Well, we're, the first beer we made when we first got started that was going into barrels was uh, Rhino Suit, right? Stout, yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and some of that was from sort of my history of um, brewing big beers to be put in bourbon barrels sure. because I brewed in Chicago from 2001 to 2009. And as we know, that's where a lot of the origination came from. Right, right. And so I learned a lot from, you know, going to Fobab and um, um, some of my friends there um, making great stouts. And That's a festival of barrel aged beers for right. those that are not familiar yes. with that acronym. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and so I just had some recipes that were were big, complex stouts, and we knew they're also forgiving when you use that many um, uh, different malts and put it in bourbon barrels and have that big of a beer. Forgiving. Yeah. Forgiving in that we were just setting out to figure out 
what our beers were going to be. And even though I had been a brewer for almost 15 years when we started this, still, I'm, I'm on someone else's brew house. Um, we don't ha own a brew house. And so we would go to um, our friend's brew house, rent it out and brew there. So we were still trying to dial in the system, so to speak. Sure. And uh, go ahead. I think, yeah, sorry, just to jump in. I think, I think that um, we kind of took for granted, at least in my perspective, we were like, Matt knows how to make really good bourbon barrel aged beer. And it was just like, okay, we're going to get that out of the way first. And then we're going to focus on how we're going to make really unique wild beers. Cause it was like, I remember just being so not stressed out about making bourbon barrel aged beer. Cause Matt had been doing it for so long. Yeah. And he does such a good job at it. It was just like, we that's down check mark done. Yeah. And then it was just like, and of course we're the beers we put out now are by no means the same as that. Like we are constantly changing things and tweaking things and making them better with every vintage. But it was really like in the beginning, it was focusing on like, okay, how are we going to make these these wild beers to like the standard of the beers that we really like to drink? Like, how are we going to make an awesome Brett Saison that we can like hold up next to an Orval or an awesome mixed culture sour beer that we can hold up to to Casey Brewing and Blending or to Chad at Crooked Save, you know? So it was, I think we were both more intimidated by that side and really trying to hone that in. And that's why it was like bourbon beer first. Yeah, sure. Let's right. get that going. Yep. Sure. Well, let's talk about that. What what makes it forgiving? You know, as you were thinking about a recipe that was going going to potentially give you a wider you know chance of success, increase that probability with all the variables going on. You know, what did that recipe start looking like? And then let's also talk about how that may you know as you build experience on a brew house and have you know some track record how you may have moved that over time to, to hit exactly, especially even now as tastes continue to change in that whole sphere of barrel aged beer and what consumers want now, but where did you start? Um, right. Well, um, I think when, when I talk about forgiving, part of that is if you take a, so the first recipe was an Imperial milk stout, big old Imperial stout with, with lactose. And then the second brew was more of a traditional Imperial stout with a little more uh, roasted barley. And we did some blending with those. Um, but when I say forgiving, it's, you know, if that beer had finished at 10% alcohol versus 11%, would it really have mattered? It wouldn't have. So hitting 20 Play-Doh versus 25 versus 26, it's not going to matter. And right. so, so I knew I could figure out how that goes. Um, my philosophy um, in brewing and creating a recipe is a lot like a chef. I, I, I brewing like a chef does in creating recipes is that you're layering complexities on Um you know your ingredients, you know what you're using and how they taste by themselves. And if you've brewed long enough, you kind of know how they work together. And so um, before Brian makes fun of me for this, I'll just tell you that um, many of our bourbon barrel aged beers have a lot of different malts in them. It, we've, we've had what a, a brewer said to us once like, oh yeah, my, we do too, like six or seven. Brian's like, oh, Matt uses like 13, 14, 15 different malts. <laughs> and some people would say, why? But you know what? That has to do with complexity. Um, you know, using pale. I know, I know another brewer that does it that way too. Uh, he's been pretty successful with it at, at Side Project. Oh, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah. Those stuff. I'm pretty vocal about how he gets a little out of control with uh, not brewing like a professional would, brewing like a home brewer would. Good. Well, I, I, I'm, I think it's important to have complexity in those beers because they're so big. They can't be sure. one noted, sure. right? And I learned that from Todd Ashman, who, you know, was a Flossmore station and won lots of uh, beer uh, awards in the Midwest. It was one of the first putting beers in bourbon barrels. Um, he ended up opening 50-50 brewing, right. yep, where, where Brian and Doug are from in Truckee. So, um, yeah, just kind of learned it from him. And so a lot of different malts, layering complexities, and then using the barrel as a fifth ingredient where right. um, that is really how you're layering on multiple flavors and whether it be 
coconut, caramel, vanilla, bourbon, all those things come to make a, a beer like that. So we just, we just set out to make a big beer that had a lot of complexities. And I knew from previous recipes, I could, I could make that, uh, make that work for us. Well, let's walk through that. What, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm curious where these malts are, what they are and, and you know, how, how big of that normal, you know, was, I assume it's a two row base of a significant portion. And then, uh, you know, where do you, where do you start building from, from that base malt? Yeah. So, so what I typically like to do is use, um, some of the imported malts like, um, Simpson golden promise, um, mm. Maris Otter two row. Yeah. Um, one thing that's interesting Can about- Can you really taste that flavorful- I, uh, I think so, absolutely. Really, even through all of that other- Yep, and, and we have no problem using some American two-row and certainly do in a lot of our beers, um, but to have that full flavored mouthfeel, mm-hmm. like I, I, I think um, the answer is definitely yes, because if you made a beer with all two-row out of your silo versus dumping bags of, of Simpson Golden Promise, I think you'd notice, notice the difference. Um, so I think the first start is sort of a real high quality pale ale malt, mm. um, from another country. Now shipping costs are making that tougher and tougher these days, but, um, that's where we start. And then you've got a host of caramel malts. Um, you know, um, one I really love for some of the beers we make is double roasted crystal from Simpsons also mm. just a wonderful malt to eat by itself. Um, <laughs> don't even need to brew with it. Just munch on it. Sure. Sure. Um, and then multiple dark malts too. Like for instance, I'll use chocolate malt and pale chocolate just to get more depth flavor, depth of flavor from the, from the chocolate. Um, in those beers, we'll often go a little lighter on roast type things, roasted barley and, and, um, anything that's going to give it any harshness just because kind of what we were going for is not the overly sweet beers, but we wanted a sweet roundness to it. Um, and we think it, uh, sometimes the harshness can be a little too much. Um, more chocolate, less coffee. Totally. Yep. Yep. But also, you know, I've used some, some nice brown malt, coffee malt too, that, that just like layers things in. And then the other thing too, is we set out to make that rhino suit our, our first, it's kind of our, it's kind of our, our canvas for painting our adjuncts on we'll, we'll release rhino suit by itself. It's an Imperial milk stout age and bourbon barrels, but then we'll add more flavor to it with all the different, you know, We've sure, done mocha, sure. we've done vanilla, we've done raspberry, we've done senior rhino, which is our Mexican hot chocolate, our Abraxas sort of uh, tribute. Um, so yeah, just I, I think complexities is where I'm going with this is um, more caramel and chocolate and things like that. How does that play out then? You know, are you just using you know small similar percentages of, of, across all of these? you know, uh, small specialty malts, or are there some that you weigh a little heavier than others? Um, well, that's interesting because, um, certainly we'll, we'll dabble things in there. However, um, our batch size, our work batch size is 20 barrels. That's what we started with. Um, because that's what the brewery we were partnering with to go into the brewery and do it with. And, and we make some 50 barrel batches too. I'm not a fan of having partial bags laying around the brewery that mice can get into. And so I'll just use a whole bag. Sometimes I'll use a half a bag of something, (laughs) but I like to round up to 55. Um, Now, if we're using something that's a little, you know, uh, stronger, but, you know, carafa or or roasted barley or anything like that, I'm going to use as much as I need to, you know, 1%, 2%, something. But. And we're putting a whole bag of this, whole bag of that roundup. Keep keeping it yeah. simple. And, and you know what? I, I mentioned brewing like a chef. I really like toss a little of this, toss a little of that. And if it doesn't kind of work for you, you just add a little bit more later. It's it's the only problem is unlike a chef, our brews aren't instant gratification. I can't taste it 10 minutes later and see if it's okay. We have to wait, you know, 
months, months, a year, <laughs> yeah. a year, sure. and then go sure. back to the drawing board. So it's a little challenging on that aspect. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, of course, you're trying to, you know, then mash through this, and then, you know, I imagine you've got a, a pretty big, you know, grist bill here. Um, you know, talk to me about that, that kind of mash process. Um, you know, you're gonna. You're not focusing on the highest possible attenuation, but at the right. same time, you're also dealing with alcohol that's going to to fight against that fermentation itself. Um, you know, what do some of those parameters become through that mash process? Well, I think the first thing that we have come to realize is um, when you're brewing something for barrel, it's a little different than brewing a certain style for by, to drink by itself. Right. Um, I contend that um, the oak and the booze kind of dries out the palate a little bit, and so. I try to make beers that are finish higher than you'd normally want to drink them. Um, and that way, as they age in the barrel, you've got a good balance at the finish. So we'll mash a little higher. You know, um, a, a beer I might mash, uh, mash at 152, we'll raise that up to 155 or 156 to leave some more residual sugar behind. Now, all that being said is um, we make beers that, let's be honest, you could call them pastry stouts these days, but we're not finishing at... 15 Play-Doh, 18 Play-Doh, anything like that. Really, it's... Where, it's, you, where are you trying eight, to finish? I mean, eight, eight and a half. Really? I mean, that what low? would you say, yeah. between eight and 10? Yeah, and it's funny. I've been holding this back this whole time because the when we first started and we were just like, yeah, we got to finish at nine to go in a barrel, we'd get eye rolls from brewers being like, that's so high. What are you thinking? It's too high. And now it's Now like, it's changed. Now we're the ones that are like putting way too try, <laughs> dry of a beer in a barrel. Ah. It's like people are putting 20, 20 Play-Doh beer in barrels and stuff now. But we... um. I would just like to say that we, we focus really heavily on balance and we want you to have multiple glasses of something. And I think that if you have a beer that's, you know, 20 bricks left, it's like pretty hard to have multiple glasses of it, in my opinion, than something that has, you know, eight, eight bricks left. No, that, that's not an barrel. opinion, Brian. That's actually a fact. <laughs> <laughs> you are right. Um, yeah. When, 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 you know, uh, we're, we're talking in Plato here, home brewers that are listening might be talking specific gravity, but when you have a finished beer that is the same viscosity as most beers starting work or way more than most beers starting work, that doesn't work for me. It just doesn't work for me. And there's some delicious beers out there that have a f high finishing gravity, but we're in the business of uh, drinking glassfuls for enjoyment, not, we would love for people to share our beer, but we'd rather you just drink the whole thing yourself and ask for another. That's just how we, our philosophy has, has been. And I feel like an eight Play-Doh finishing beer is way more drinkable than a 20 Play-Doh finishing beer. Sure. Sure. Um, from a, since you are barrel aging and then building all of these generally out of blends and you're bringing a whole bunch of beer, uh, you know, do you vary base recipes in order to build bigger blending stock or do you brew a pretty consistent recipe then that just lets the different barrel expressions add their own character to it? We've kind of done both, um, but we do, I mean, having the high inventory of barrel stock is huge for us. I think one of the things that we have an advantage in, in being a brewery that brews all barrel aged beer is we have a huge cellar full of barrels. And some breweries, if they just have a small barrel program of eight barrels, 16 barrels, 24 barrels, whatever, you have to just brew the beer and whatever comes out, you say, well, this is it. I hope you like it. There's nothing to blend it in. And unless you maybe brew a non-barrel aged beer and, and tweak it a little bit, but we've got all kinds of barrels and we, we have, you know, what, what did we do uh, recently or a year ago? I guess it was time flies. Um, we had like a chocolate stout. We had a then we brew like three different beers yeah, at once so, just for that. <clears throat> yeah, we do both. So like our, our Imperial Milk Stout is like kind of our workhorse in that series. And, and it's Rhino suit and turns into a lot of other things. And then we have, um, we'll like have brew, we'll have that in several different types of barrels to have 
again, complexity in the blend or to be able to choose if we wanted to do single barrel variants or something. And then also, yeah, we did a, we did a chocolate porter and then we also just did a big Imperial stout without the lactose in it and something more bitter. And then we've done, I mean, we've done this on our, on our more pale barrel aged beers too. So the barley wine, and then we have like some other blenders that we can use for cocktail beers and stuff. So it's really like, I think a big turning point for the quality of our beers was when we finally got to that threshold of like, we've got enough beer in barrels that we're not like, this batch went into these barrels and it has to get released. It's like, Oh, we have, we have more beer in barrels than we're going to release this year. And that was like a big turning point for us to put out way better beer. Cause we just had like more colors in our palette that we could go not only of different base styles, but different types of wood and different types of spirit as well. And I think that was a goal from the start, even though we had a pretty small barrel program, we we called ourselves ale song brewing and blending. Cause we knew from day one, we were going to be blending different barrels together. And that was going to be a big piece of the complexities of the beer that we were producing. Do you, uh, you know, is everything pretty consistent in terms of gravity around that? I know there are certainly blending strategies now where certain brewers are brewing higher gravity beers they're putting into barrels, you know, knowing that they're never going to release that, that it'll become a blending component, um, you know, because they tend to age with, with those spirits barrels in different ways. Does that ever enter into your program or are you just keeping it uh, on the drier side? Yeah, drier side compared to modern brewing for sure. But I'd say that our our finishing gravity in our cellar on that side is probably from seven to thirteen or fourteen, mm. um, maybe thirteen on the high end. So it is a yeah. decently, you know, reasonably wide range. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. And again, we're 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 vintage brewers. It's like you know, just because we're making rhino suit every year, that rhino suit recipe is tweaked every year as well. So it's like we, um, like we're getting we're not trying to do the same the same exact bourbon barrels, the same exact length of time, the same flavor profile. Exactly. It's really like, that's what was so romantic with me about wine vintages is like, then that's how we approach all of our beers. So it could be called Rhino suit, but it's Rhino suit 21 as opposed to Rhino suit 2020. And it's going to be different because a, we tweak the recipe because palates change and palates adjust and we got different barrels and the temperature in the cellar was different. So it's like having all of that flexibility. And it's really like when you're getting one of our beers, it's, it's our palate that we went through and tasted and we're like, Oh, in this season, this is the one that we liked. So that's what sure. we blended together. Sure. Over time, are there some things that you, uh, you know, from 2016 to now, some things that have worked their way out of the recipe and some things that have worked them, their way into it? I don't know if on the, on the spirits barrel age side, we have anything I can think of that, that has kind of gone by the wayside. Um, we are experimenting more with starting and finishing gravities, but um, I think on the on the um, on the wild mixed culture side, I think we definitely have changed some things, not only from wort production um, to some of our blending and processing techniques as well totally. to make better beer. We'll talk about that soon, but yeah, not I think yet. I think okay, we the, can't, can't, yeah. don't, don't spoil <laughs> that. We got to you know, leave the only that thing, up. The only thing I can think of on the Spirits Barrel Light size is we spent the first several seasons honing in what type of bourbon barrel we liked that was just like the one that we liked the most and was most repeatable and got good character and it's heaven hill is the one that we came back to every Uh, time so we first were like we're gonna get a a, you know a smattering of barrels and put the same base in it and see where we like it and what comes across and it's like you'd buy these really expensive really old you know 24 year bourbon barrels whatever and then you're like wait a minute the eight year heaven hill that's most likely evan williams like comes across better in this beer than these you know Woodford 20 or Woodford's or whatever. Sure, and you're, so sure. that that's kind of the only thing I can think of that we've really just like honed in on the bulk of our cellar is heaven Hill barrels. And then we have a smattering of other barrels to play with, but that's kind of the bulk of it. I think that's probably the only thing that we really 
Yeah, look, on some, that, small little pro tip here. Um, Pappy Van Winkle 23 Year is a great, great bourbon. Uh, but I don't know if it makes the best beers because all the flavor has been extracted out of those barrels into that yummy bourbon. And um, so get a little younger barrels and, and you'll get more oak and whiskey yeah. flavor. Isn't that like every brewer's secret? Yeah, yeah. That that Pappy 23 barrel beer that you so highly coveted actually has a few other barrels blended in. And those are the ones that are probably uh, adding some more of the flavor than the Pappy. Well, I mean, but you know, hey, the, the marketing and the name the mar- works. The totally. marketing is, is totally. what will sell that beer for you. Absolutely. I would still use one of those barrels in a blend. Yeah, I would still buy it. I would still buy it if I had the chance. <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. Uh, how's fermentation look on that? I imagine it's a clean, uh, you know, you just Cali Ale yeast fermentation and keeping that uh, pretty clean. Yep. Uh, Cali Ale yeast is, is our workhorse for our bourbon barrel aged beers, spirits barrel aged beers. Um, what do you say, 68 or? Yeah, we're at, we're at 68 on that. And it's, it's pretty quick. It goes till dry, give it a rest, and then it goes, you know, we'll cool it to crash out most of the yeast, and then it goes down into barrel. So pretty, yeah, straightforward. Pretty, yeah. pretty easy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you do, I should say, keep the clean and the the uh, funky side of, of the brand separate and separate buildings. Um, is that uh, just a space issue, or is that uh, due to some concern about cross contamination? I'd we- say more of a space issue. When we first started, we had them both in the same cellar, um, and we didn't have any issues. We actually, the only time we've had infection issues is when they were in separate, oh. in separate facilities. But that was the insane heat wave that made our cellar incredibly hot, and that kind of torched some barrels for us. But the, uh, yeah, it's really size. It is convenient having them separate, and we have so that means just by nature we have separate pumps and separate tools and stuff. Sure, um, but we're still. Um, using the same bottling line and the same blending tanks. And we've done that from the get-go. So we're pretty anal in the cellar on on our cleaning and sterilization processes to to make sure that we can use the same, you know, same tanks and bottling line for sure, these beers. Sure, And since, uh, since you don't have a brew house per se, uh, you can invest in other pieces of this to exactly, make, it all, exactly. make it all work for you. Let's talk about adding ingredients into those, uh, those barrel-aged stouts. But before we do, the secret is out, and Canada Malting Company's newest malt is here, introducing Europills made from the finest overseas low-protein barley available. This malt exudes traditional European Pilsner malt character highlighted by the biscuity notes, which accent the subtle, grassy undertones. Europills is available now in limited quantities in select markets, so don't miss out. Contact Country Malt Group to try Europills in your next brew. Also, as Craft Beer's most trusted point-of-sale system arrived, is the mobile all-in-one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction. With a full suite of craft-specific features, no contracts and no monthly fees, Arrived provides the necessary tools to help your brewery grow. Go to arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo. That's arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash CBB. Remember, there is no I in Arrived. On that cross-contamination question, uh, I was meeting up with uh, Trevor and Matt at DeGarde last night. And, you know, I loved it because they are fermenting their wine in the same tanks that have previously fermented, you know, sour, spontaneous beer. Uh, and it would take quite a cleaning regimen to, for me to trust that kind of move, but it's kind of amazing what you can accomplish if, uh, if you just clean things well. Yeah. What is the timing it takes you to turn over a tank, Brian? Yeah, I guess I'll just, so when we go from, when we're about to put a clean beer, so say we're switching our bright tank from a, a bottling a mixed culture beer to a, a clean beer, 
it gets your it gets a PBW cycle, so just like the powdered brewery cleaner cycle, and then it gets a, a full caustic cycle, and then it gets steamed, so the whole tank gets up to 180 degrees. Um, all the parts get boiled, and any like sight glasses they just get swapped out for new, um, and then cools down, goes through a sani. So that I mean, it takes probably most of a day to turn a turn our hundred barrel blending tank into a from from cl- uh, wild beer to clean beer. And that's kind of the regimen for everything. It's just like it's PBW caustic steam sand chemical sani. <laughs> sure, it's yeah. quite a process. Yeah, yeah. How often do you do that? So yeah, it's just between when we're switching. So like we, we things gener- in production, it generally tends to like okay, we're gonna do a bunch of wild beer at once because it's whether get ready filling barrels because fruit season just happened or we just packaged a bunch of wild beer and then or it's like we're going into winter and we're gonna be bl- uh, barreling down a bunch of bourbon beer. So it kind of comes in waves. Sure. Of like, it's pretty rare that you're like, oh, we're gonna do wild beer this week, clean beer next week, wild beer the next week. So right, right. Yeah. Let's talk about adding ingredients. Uh, you know, clearly that's a big part of everyone's barrel aged stout program these days. How do you all approach that? Uh, and you've already mentioned you try to brew like a chef. Uh, and here's your chance to use culinary ingredients in beers. Uh, where do you start with that? What's your evaluation process look like? And how do you start building, uh, um, you know, that kind of adjunct ingredient, uh, you know, part of the beer? How do you think about that and start building it so that all those flavors work together? Uh, you know, one thing that's interesting is we don't do a lot of test batching, pilot batching. Um, we will do some some little tri- bench trials now and again. To, if we have a new ingredient, we're trying to see how much impact it has on on um, uh, picking up flavor extraction. Um, but at least in the early days, we just kind of went for it. We're like, I think um, a pound per barrel or something. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing is like we come up we, we come up with the base blend, and then we sit around and we taste it, and we go, okay. Either a this is awesome, let's release it. Doesn't need to, doesn't need anything, or it's like oh this would be really awesome if it had a little more umami or it had a little more chocolate or it was a little more heavy mouthfeel or or this or that. And then that's kind of where you like you build on it and you're like oh I'm getting this really cool vanilla note from this bourbon barrel. It'd be nice to up that a little bit. Um, so it's really just like tasting the base and then talking about like oh what would make this better. And it's never done in one so shot. So you work from then that base beer. I know I've, yeah. I've asked folks that before. Like, do, do you have an idea for a beer and choose the barrels to fit that, or do you taste barrels and then start building around that? Yeah, it's both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think for us because we're exclusively doing these, it's not just like oh, we have these barrels in the back, and when they're ready, they're ready. Like we don't have that luxury. Um, and I think that's mostly marketing anyways, when people say that, but it's like, we have a production plan. We have to, we're planning two years out on what we mm-hmm. want to do and what we want to make. And then as we get closer, that's when you're tasting it. And the production plan often changes. Some people say they listen to the barrels and s- serve it when it's ready. We tell the barrel when it's ready. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, again, that's a, that's a, that's a beauty of having so many barrels in right. your cellar is you can come up with an awesome blend kind of, if you have to. Um, but the biggest thing is like, you know, if we have on the schedule, like, okay, adjunct, rhino suit is on the schedule or we'll even have it down to like, okay, we're going to do mocha rhino suit again. Well, we can get to that point and we can taste it and we'd be like, actually this already has some like cool cinnamon flavors. Let's scrap that. And we're going to do senior rhino instead. Or we're like just going to release rhino suit this time. And then we taste rhino suit and we're like, man, it's a little thinner this year than previous years. Let's up that. Let's add chocolate and vanilla beans to it so we can like up some body and mouthfeel. And it's really like, there's some, we brew it with the idea in mind and then we taste the blend and we're like, okay, how, how do we make this the best possible beer we can? And that often changes. And Huck, my lead seller, if he was out here, he'd 
be rolling his eyes because there's so many times that we just delay packaging and delay packaging and delay packaging because we're like, oh, it's not ready yet. Nope, we need to tweak it. Oh, it's not ready yet. We're going to add this thing into it. Nope, not ready yet. So it's it's really like we take that last step so seriously and so time consuming and it takes up so much of our effort because it's like we're just tweaking it until it's in the bottle and then frankly if i could still tweak it when it was in the bottle i would <laughs> but it's just that's yeah. the that's the what is that ingredient process. ingredient addition process like, well and let's start with ingredient sourcing is you know is there any magic to that for you or a way that you taste and evaluate those ingredients yeah, definitely. Um, you know, in Oregon and, and many places in the country, we have such good access to things, even if they're not grown in our country. So coffee roasters for one, we put coffee in something and we have a plethora of yeah, awesome what do we roasters have, like eight or nine coffee in this town, in, in this town, yeah, yeah. town in, of 170,000 people. Right. Um, so we can pick and choose the coffee that we like. And, and also some of them will work with us. Actually, the ones we've worked with will work special roasts for us and, and kind of custom custom blend something, which is really nice. Um, when you say custom roast, what do you find? Do you, is there a specific kind of roast that you tend to prefer for coffee that you're pushing into your beer? So what's tricky is that when you work with any artisan, right, they want to show off what they can do. And when we talk to roasters, they're like, okay, so do you want like a blueberry profile on this or do you want this? And then oftentimes I'm like, look, if I wanted to add blueberries to this beer, I'd add blueberries to this beer. Like we want coffee flavored coffee, right? And that's like, so that's one of those things is you're like, okay, how can we get, how can we get like a really cool coffee expression that the, the, that when you taste it, you're like, Ooh, that's awesome coffee, but it doesn't have the like bitterness and the acidity, um, from that either. So we've kind of settled on, um, coffee plant roasters are here with West Eugene. Um, their espresso roast is really good for that. And we're still like tweaking with, with things on that, but it's really like on the, on the stout side of things, it's really like, okay, we want a vanilla bean to make it taste like vanilla. We want a cocoa nib to make it cocoa nibs too. chocolate alchemy here in Eugene. They're rad. And they, they supply cocoa nibs for so many people across the country and they have so many different, just like sources of nibs and then the way they roast them and all these things. And you go in there and you're just like learning so much every time you go in there about different nibs. And then at the end of the day, you're like, I love what you're doing <laughs> and I love all these cool nuanced flavors you right. can get, but they just get lost in the beer. We need this to just be like impactful chocolate give me give me a brownie flavor in your chocolate i mean the guy what he's great i love john and he impresses us he built a winnowing machine that takes the husk off a cocoa nib and sold one to uh, stone i guess they use it in something and then also um he worked with um big bad baptist brewers epic thank epic, you yeah. epic brewing because they make a lot of that stuff right. too and so he's worked with breweries around the country and we can just drive to his place and get it but like brian said we just want it to taste like chocolate and we want it to taste like coffee um, but we can source all kinds of herbs from mountain rose herb uh, here in town and, and so like whatever we want to get we have outlets for them here we don't have to get on amazon or whatever um and they can source really good, high-quality things. They might be organic, they may not, but we know they're going to taste great in our beer. What's that creative process look like then when you're thinking about something? Do you order a bunch of or go over and grab a bunch of stuff and you know start tasting and rubbing and smelling, or, or you know do you work from inspiration from something that you've had from a local chef? I mean, you know where where do you start pulling those things from? I think it's both of those things. I think a lot of times we draw inspiration from other beers we've had, we mm. from foods that we've eaten. Um, um, and, and, and it might just be, we went down there, the, the mountain rose herb mercantile, where it's just kind of their, um, small shop where you don't buy in bulk. 
um, you can just get these little four ounce packets of things. And so we'll bring that back to the brewery and taste and smell. And, you know, there's several kinds of cinnamon you can use in, sure. in beers. And, you know, is should we use, um, you know, this one from Sri Lanka or, or not? And so we'll bring those in and we can easily steep some stuff out of a barrel. And yeah, I, I did say we don't try all that much, but we actually do to figure out exactly what we yeah. want. And, and I think that I'd say the bulk of our inspiration comes from food. It's like, we'll be the amount of times probably in our, in Matt, Doug and I's group text message that it's like a photo of a f something. And we're like, this would be an awesome beer or like, let's try this. And like our inspiration for, for these, for beers all the time, always like either a cocktail, some sort of cool food thing we had, or again, inspiration from just a cool ingredient that we can get locally. But a lot of it is like, oh yeah, wouldn't this be cool if we did this? And then it's like, okay, let's wrap our heads around how that works. Yeah. What's the addition process look like? Are you all recirculating, bagging, you know, free floating, you know, I mean, there's, or using some combination of techniques for these? Well, I'll let Brian kind of explain, but I think the biggest uh, improvement we made is when we got some bigger tanks and now we can do this steeping process where it's moving the beer back mm. and forth on our stuff until it's the right flavor. But if Brian, if you want to walk. Yeah, we that. always start. And again, going back to, to, to drinkability, to quote the big guys, um, we really try to have these beers drinkable and drinking lots of ounces of them, you know, and like, well, I use, or we use less percentage of adjuncts than, than a lot of our peers do. And we probably always start on the lower end and then we add until we like it. Um, so it's, it's like, as so on the bigger batches, it's like, we'll have our hundred barrel blend tank. And then we have our 20 barrel bright tank and we've, we've, our fabricator here in town has made me a false bottom in it. So we have it in bags and on the false bottom. Um, and we'll just like recirc back and forth. it'll like go on, sit overnight and then recirc and then go on, sit overnight and recirc. And we kind of keep doing that process until we get the extraction that we want. Um, there's definitely times where we're like, shoot, we've kind of extracted all the, all the nib flavor we want and we, it's not enough. So then we'll do it. We'll like have to restart and keep going. Sure. Um, but we were like pretty careful not to go over, at least for our palates of what we prefer um, to go overboard on that. And then even on a small scale, we have some smaller like eight barrel tanks that are set up the same way that we can, if we're doing a 20 barrel batch, we can kind of recirc in those eight barrel tanks. Um, like right now we're adding vanilla to a beer and that's um, just in bags in a, in a fermenter. And when, you know, and I'm just stirring it through the carb stone and when it gets to the expression we like, we'll transfer it into the bright tank and it'll be done. Um, but always having a tank in the cellar available to be like, okay, it's done, get it off. Because I think in any of those adjuncts, you can start getting off flavors the longer it's on there. So that's more of like a, a high concentration than maceration or extraction that you're then pumping back into the main tank. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Are there any ingredients that have ever, you know, posed you particular challenges or ones that you find that uh, you, you need to you know, continue to add or push past what you thought? Or ones where you found that just uh, you needed to source a different uh, ingredient or a different uh, you know, location or origin for that in order to get the expression that you're truly looking for uh yeah for sure and and i think more so on the on the the fruit side for our mixed culture beers but on the on the bourbon side like uh what's really interesting is when you have a blend of adjuncts in a beer to see like which ones fade as it's in the bottle and which ones come out more in the bottle it's like cinnamon seems to like come out the longer it's in a bottle whereas like um, coconut really fades in the bottle it's like after six months it just tastes way less coconutty than when you first went sure. into it um so that's kind of just a learning process on like oh if we if we do the cinnamon to what we want it to taste in the bright tank it's going to be too much cinnamon so in six months so it's like finding that balance of like okay do we want to cater to the people that are waiting holding on our beer for six months which is fine i'd rather you know you should drink it sooner but 
and buy more, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, the, uh, kind of finding that balance of like how it ages in the bottle is probably the biggest thing on the bourbon barrel age side. What's the goal then? Where I mean, are you, what, you know, I mean, every brewer is shooting for it. And if you're an IPA brewer, you're shooting for what a ninety days of right. You know that first ninety days, and it needs, but it needs to be good up until then. And then after, you know, after you hit that date code, that's it. That, that's one of the challenges that we find in a brewery like ours is that we're like, when are you going to drink it? And we have so many people who ask us, hey, how long is this good for? And our first response is, we aged it for you. It's ready. We release when it's ready. You should drink it now. However, it will age gracefully in the proper temperatures. And so you can keep it. I often joke you should buy 12 bottles and just try it once a month and you'll see what it's like after a year. But they don't always take me up on that. Um, So so I don't know. I think we try to find a balance maybe of, of tasting awesome now and aging gracefully, but we do know there's going to be some changes. And I, I don't know that there's anything we can do about that. I think the biggest thing we can do is make sure it's a clean beer that is going to age gracefully and no other problems with it, no off flavors to start, no off flavors later. And most importantly is when we release it, because that's when we have it in draft in the tasting rooms. It's when the bulk of our club members are drinking it. So it's like really doing that. And then I think it's for our own, our own curiosity and our own like improvement for the next year to be like, okay, we could probably dial back the cinnamon a little on that one, or we could, we should dial up the coconut on that one. Like it's, it's small tweaks, but it's really probably like, we want it to be great when it's released. Sure, sure. Uh, we've talked a lot about barrel aged clean beers, but I haven't, we haven't, and we've only hinted about uh, you know, uh, Brett beers and uh, mixed culture beers. So let's let's flip it here and start talking about that. Uh, one of the one of the early beers you brewed, what Touch of Brett, uh, you know, landed a very early gold medal at GABF for you. Uh, you've you've since picked up uh, quite a bit of hardware in Brett beers. Let's let's talk about building Brett beer and uh, you know how you started formulating, you know, not just an idea for this, but, uh, you know, recipe and technique to execute on it. Yeah. I think there's two reasons we started out with a hundred percent Britannomyces fermented beer. And Brian, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we knew that we could produce a beer like that in a little quicker time than a long aged mixed culture sour beer. And so that was one of those early, we need some cash flow coming. So it wouldn't take 12 months in a barrel to finish. Um, and two, we're very influenced, as I mentioned before, by the Belgian tradition and, and a beer that we both love is Orval and, and love how it um, evolves from a bitter beer to start. And when the bread expression comes up as the hop character goes down, we wanted to explore that sort of thing. And so we made sort of a, a, a rustic farmhouse um, um, base and we used um, Britannomyces. Did we have a blend from the start or was it a single no, strain? No, the first one was Clausenii. Yeah. for that first one. Yep, and, and and we didn't really know what we needed. We knew we liked that strain, um, so we started there. Um, that was probably batch three to go into uh, a fermenter for us. Um, and what we wanted to do was also have a very healthy ferment. Um, we know Brett beers can be stressed out when you do when you put in the Brett post-fermentation, if you use sack first. We wanted it to have a healthy expression, and we find that our many of our Brett beers um, have a very fruity, tropical, pineapple notes, and not as much maybe as the horsey, funky, you know, sweaty sort of character, although you get those after aging. Um, and we wanted um, to use some, you know, new world hops that would um, complement the yeast, the Brett yeast character well. And so we just set out to start with that. Uh, it was called Touch of Brett, um, inspired by Touch of Grey from Grateful Dead. We have some song references in the Ale Song repertoire. And we entered it in JBF, and lo and behold, it won the gold medal at JBF uh, that first year. We were five months old. Yeah. 
from selling yeah, our first beer crazy. and we won a gold. And I made a bit of a scene in the audience of that one. <laughs> he did. I mean, he just about lost it. And, and uh, you know, I, I try to subscribe to the, um, uh, you know, the saying, act like you've been there before after scoring a touchdown. But I, think we, that's what, I think that's what Matt, hit, I think he hit me and was like, act like you've been here before. And I was like, I haven't, Matt. You <laughs> that's, have. <laughs> that's true. I, I had been there before, so I knew the feeling, but I think I still probably lost it too because this was my company. I've worked for several other people, great people in the brewing sure, industry. Sure. But now this was mine, and it was my and Brian and Doug's gold medal and Ailsong's gold medal. So that was that was pretty special um, to win with that beer. And so therefore, we had to continue to make that beer and beers like that because we set this the bar high for ourselves. So when you say a you know uh, friendly fermentation or a gentle fermentation and a low low stress Britannomyces fermentation, you know what are, what are some of the factors that weigh into that? So higher pitch rates. So we pitch that at, at like lager pitch rates. Um, we also ferment it cooler. So we'll let it free rise to like, counting your cells and making sure, you know, yourself or, uh, so these are, yeah, we're getting, pitch. yeah, we're getting, uh, laboratory pitches. Cool. Um, and then, uh, we let it rise to like 73 and then we ferment it down at 68. Um, fermenting at that temp seems to really drive citrus character for mm. us. Um, the, the other big thing and is, is it still cluster AI, um, in all of our breads, okay. yeah, all the bread strains. I think that it's, it's really interesting to be like, okay, uh, uh, the iconic, like off flavors of bread in a bread infection is like when you have a, a wine that's infected by bread. Cause that's about as harsh of an environment as it can get. And it kicks off like the most, you know, probably unpleasant bread aromas and flavors. But if you're like inoculating it where it's the only strain in there, you're giving it tons of oxygen and we oxygenate for three days after brewing three days. Yeah. So we'll do like a normal oxygenation into the tank and then we do about uh, 10 minutes of oxygen for the next, uh, the next two days. So three total, um, and pure oxygen. Yep. Yep. And then, uh, it's really just like, it's the only thing in there. It usually takes four days to kick off. And then when it starts going, it's, it's a slow ferment, but we just let it go. And it probably goes to about 85% attenuation, um, in that first go. And then it goes the rest of the way in the barrel, but it's really just like having a good, uh, nutrient source in the, in the, in the, 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 the grain bill, we use a ton of raw grains and, and you got to make sure that when, cause that beer is going to go to zero Plato. So you got to make sure that there's still some body and mouthfeel left. So there's a lot of raw grains in there to kind of help a with nutrients of the, of the bread, but B with the mouthfeel on the finished beer. Um, what does that grist bill look like then? Well, a lot of it is unmalted wheat. So we use malted wheat and, uh, so two row. Uh, unmalted wheat, malted wheat. We use some oats to bring some more mouthfeel to that, and there's also rye in it. So it's sort of, sort of a. Mm. I I hesitate you do like making complex. I know. Malt I know. <laughs> well, I, I hesitate to call it a rye saison because I think it's only I don't know the percentage, but it's a bag of rye. Um, uh, and then um, yeah, wheat, wheat, oats, and rye, along with the two row. Mm-hmm. How much, uh, you know, in rough percentages, obviously, since we don't have the entire recipe right here, how much would be, you know, base malt versus, uh, uh, you know, those, those adjuncted malts. Right. Um, I think if I were to guess about 70% two row, mm-hmm. um, maybe yeah. 10, 10%, uh, oats, I'm, I'm sorry, that's probably 20% wheat and then 10% oats and, and a, a percent of rye, 2% rye, something like that. Mm. That didn't equal 100, but you know. Who's <laughs> counting? Yeah, yeah. Also, I can't give away all the secrets. Actually, <laughs> sure I can, because sure guess what? Can. No one buys Brett Saison. We can tell you all about how to make this. <laughs> You're not going to make it because you can't sell it. <laughs> I buy Brett Saison. <laughs> I drink a lot of Brett Saison. Hey, hey. 
God bless you. Um, <laughs> and thank you for making it because it, it's enjoyable for me to drink too. Um, yeah. So you go through this, you know, fermentation, how long is that, you know, general primary before you, you know, get it to that 85 ish percent? Yeah, it's usually six weeks, six in, weeks, six weeks in stainless. Um, and then yeah, down into barrel. And then how long do you let it finish in barrels before it uh, gets to where you want it to be? Yeah. So one of the, one of the ways that easiest to tell if a beer is done in barrel or not is if it's clear. Um, but generally on just total Brett Saison, it's probably another four months in barrel before I'd like, if we wanted to do an early, like touch a Brett, touch a Brett's awesome because it still has some of the hot bitterness. Um, and then we dry hop it freshly, but it's, a, it's still a relatively young beer. I mean, it's probably like four, maybe five months in barrel. And then it's another six weeks in, in bottle conditioning after it's been obviously six weeks in primary before that. So it's a pretty young beer for us and it's, you can taste it. It's fresher. It's, it's, you know, a little brighter than, than our longer aged beers. Um, but that base is also really good to go on a fruit, um, to cut down our, our blonde sour base. So we have kind of the bread saison and then the blonde sour that are kind of the, the, the key building box of our, our sour program. So we'll keep a lot of that around in barrel to, to cut down acidity on, on fruit blends and things too. With that, uh, you know, because you've, you've clearly, well, let me back up on that. Let me say, you know, what does the barrel component add to a beer like touch of breath then? You know, it's, it's a shorter amount of time, a few months, you've already got most of the fermentation finished and stainless. Why then pull that into, you know, go through this additional complex process of adding to barrel, letting it sit in a barrel for that much longer? Yeah. So that last, that last 15% of, of, of attenuation is, is the most important. I mean, when you're tasting it out of stainless at that point, it's really edgy. It's bitter. There's still a ton of yeast in solution and stuff, but it's just like, it's edgy. It's not round. It doesn't complete your palate. And then going into Oak it's, and we're, again, we're using all neutral French Oak and, and neutral Oak to us, um, is it's been probably, uh, four or five vintages at a winery before we've gotten to it. So very neutral. Um, and so we're not getting a ton of oak character either, but what you're getting with these neutral oak wine barrels is it's just like a, a vessel for it to mature in, a small vessel for it to mature in, and it's it's rounding out those flavors, it's rounding out the complex proteins that are happening in there, and it's giving the yeast its final push to go to dryness, and it's just like really finishes out the beer with some slight oxidation in there too. Yeah, I was going to say exactly what you said. The, the mat, It's a maturation tank, and we already had it in primary for six weeks, and we can't just put it in a, a bright tank for however many months sure. you said. So it's just a way to move it out to make the next beer, and it has some benefits uh, being a smaller vessel. And since you have a winery right next door to you that is uh, pushing out barrels all the time, I guess you have uh, an access to some less expensive maturation vessels then. That's right. That's yeah, right. and I don't want to say, like, I, I don't think the beer, I mean, maybe that's an experiment we should do is we should rack some in the keg so it's, like, just in stainless the whole time versus being in oak because it's we're not picking up oak character, but you are really getting some unique characteristics of just, because it is barrel-to-barrel variants, even when you're using first-use-for-us barrels. And it's really just that oxidation piece that rounds everything out and gives you just this nice perceived full body on a, you know, completely dry beer. You were mentioning as we were touring the brewery before we started the podcast that uh, you, when it's time to grab more barrels that you'd like to go over and and choose barrels. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about some of that process and what you look for as you are evaluating barrels you've got a whole bunch of stuff and a lot of them have done you know, made similar or the same wine for that matter but some barrels speak to you more than others uh, you know what is some of that criteria as you're evaluating these that you know where you can 
smell or you know or see specific things that lead you to be more or less attracted to a, sp- a specific barrel yeah what there's a couple pretty like very obvious things and it's like first is va and i think anybody that's ordered that's ordered barrels from a or i should say wine barrels specifically from a broker is it sucks when you get them in in and you're just like oh there's a bunch of va in that which is like acetone or um you know volatile acidic volatile acidic compounds um so that's like the first thing that you're smelling for and then if that's not there and then you're looking at the barrel and luckily the contents inside were red and Oak is not red. So you can see if there's any leaks. So those are the two like very like basic things that you look for. Um, and then when you're, when you're going into it as well, I look to see what wine was in it. And because I, I worked at King estate, I know which blocks I like and I know which vineyards we like. So you're like, okay, these are like, you know, this is a much more full bodied Pinot than these ones or like the year of the barrel too i'd rather get one that's younger than one that's older so we can at least get a little more oak character out of it but it's really going in and smelling them and you'll just be like you know this one is so neutral it just smells like wet wood where this one still smells beautifully of pinot noir and oak or you know kind of going through it's really just a i don't know gut i guess (laughs) sure sure um so you you put it through this process and now you've got touch of breath that uh, you know you can release by itself but nobody really drinks you know non, <laughs> I mean I, you shouldn't say that because our club members really enjoy it good, and, it's, good. and it's a it's a it's a great beer for our club members you've and, built an educated clientele that yeah. can appreciate what you do and and we're converting people constantly when they come into our tasting room and they're like well I'll have your IPA and then they're they're uh, shocked that we don't make IPA. So then we give them a touch of bread and they're like, well, this is an IPA, but it's pretty good. And then, you know, that's how we convert them. That's our gateway beer. <laughs> sure. And, sure. And I'll just tease out our, our next um, beer release is going to have a beer that we're calling a juicy farmhouse ale. Ooh. Not, not a, not a, not a bread IPA, juicy farmhouse ale. And it's nice and juicy. It's fun. Yeah. We had an opportunity to use some like more modern hops. It's so because we don't make IPA, Matt and I are just so out of the IPA game and the hop, the modern hop game. So once a year we make an IPA for our anniversary that we do a collaboration with a brewery in the Northwest and have it canned and have it canned. So it's just like kind of total opposite for us, but it's a really good opportunity to like kind of get back in the hop game and and see see all the the new new products and all all that stuff. And so we've been able to use some of those things in this uh, new Brett Saison that we've got coming out and we labored over what we should call it, um, you know, because I don't know. Yeah, we're going to get some eye rolls on that juicy yeah. farmhouse. But, you know, we, we figured today's drinker knows that juicy means they added more hops. All right. And, and some juice forward <laughs> flavored bitter. hops. Yeah, and it's not bitter. Yeah. So after this process, you know, you, you pull it out of the individual barrels. And now you either bottle or then some of that becomes beer that you add fruit to. What's that fruit process then look like for you? Yeah. So we're very, very seasonal and very harvest oriented. And we really strive to source fruit from as close to home as possible. And I work with several small growers that like some of which were buying their entire crops and they're picking based on when we want them to pick them. Um, fortunately though, King estate again, next door, not only do they grow world-class, uh, grapes and Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, but they have, uh, awesome blueberries and raspberries and pears and apples and other things I'm forgetting, but we've, we've gotten a bunch of good fruit from them that they'll again, pick kind of to our parameters. Um, we also work with, uh, other just small orchards around us. I mean, we're just spoiled in the Valley that we're in. We have a bunch of cool fruit. I, I think that, you know, would I be preaching about local agriculture so much if I lived in, in, you know, Colorado, Probably there's some good places in Colorado, but it's not as easy as it is for us, right? It's harder for Troy Casey to pull this it off. It is. It is harder he, for he, sure. He works hard to make it work. But and he, he makes it work. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. So, so a lot of that is like, we'll go through and honestly to pick the base beer that's going to go into fruit is it's like, you kind of want a beer that's, that's boring. You want a beer that's like not too acidic, that doesn't have too much Brett character. That's not like super oaky. It's like really in, in reality, kind of a flabby, boring beer. Cause you want the fruit to shine and like, we're using whole fruit picked. Flabby boring beer. Yeah, so you exactly. also want some of that, uh, you know, a less edge, a little more residual sweetness yep. potentially. Well, they're all bone dry, but when I say flabby, it's probably more, um, it's just more perceived, like just, uh, it's not just like dry on your palate. It's leaving, you know, whether that's tannin structure or it's just like some leftover from the, the wheat or whatever's in, in the mm. base malt or base beer. Um, Cause you really want the fruit to shine. And we also want the, the, the microbes that are on the fruit to come through and express themselves as a version of terroir. Cause we want, we want each of our fruit beers, like even though we do a handful of the same fruit beer every year, they're very different because it's a different crop and it's a different, you know, time of year that was picked and different. So not only is the fruit different, but the bugs that are on the fruit are different and that's going to create a different process. And we don't want some like a base beer that's going to overpower that sense of terroir or that sense of, or the fruit that is going on top of it. So the base, so are like our, our, our Lambic inspired blonde sour base, which Matt will, will, will talk to you about the hot side, but that is like, our workhorse on this. And then we blend it. If that gets a little too acidic because it's hot in the cellar or whatever, we'll blend in some Brett Saison to temper that acidity to get, and again, probably make it a little more boring of a beer before we add some really delicious fruit to it. And the fruit again is, is, is picked. Um, the only time it's frozen. So we get frozen fruit from King of state next door, the raspberries, because they don't get enough volume in it at a time. So they'll pick them at, and this is, I'm so spoiled working with farmers directly because we've all gotten ordered fruit from wholesalers or whatever, and you get it in and only like, 25% of it's ripe. Um, but they have a big freezer and they're willing to do this for me. So they pick, pick them the raspberries as they're ripe and put them in the freezer. And then when they have the six, 800 pounds that I need, they'll call me and then I'll get them. But otherwise it's like, we're getting fruit picked. We're picking it up that same day or the next day. And then it's going into our beer. Um, so it's really fresh. Uh, and then again, at its, at its peak ripeness too. So it's, it's almost like couldn't stay on the, on the vine for much longer, but then it's fermented on the whole, uh, on the skins. Um, and then kind of at that point we treat it like wine it's fermented on the skins for until dry again. So, um, usually pick up a couple of bricks from the fruit edition ferments until dry. And then it get, comes off the skins back into barrel to finish maturing. And that last maturation is again, just rounding out. Um, it's letting some of those natural bugs express themselves and round out the acids and all that. And then blended. And then that, that last blending is where we can again, adjust if we need to on acidity or or you know temper it down or whatever we want to do back that, yeah. into wood after the fruiting process yep so we fruit generally in e either one of our large format um oak vessels or in a stainless steel fruiting tank and then yeah it's only on the skins for probably three weeks max and then it gets racked off the fruit back into oak to finish maturing and that's a little extra process that a lot of brewers do not engage in after that. I mean, even Lambic producers generally will not do that. that totally. It'll go through that fruit process and it goes straight out of there into bottling. Yep. Um, you know, you alluded to it for a second there, but I think we got, kind of got lost in the mix. What does that additional step truly add to the, the overall uh, je ne sais quoi of the beer. Yeah. I think it's really just sharpness. I mean, when you get it, when you get it right off the fruit to me, at least in our cellar and our bugs, right. I'm not digging on anybody that does it, but it's just like for us and for our palate, like right when the fruit fermentation's done. And if you let it go a little longer too, it's just like kind of one dimensional. You've you're, 
you're very, very fruit forward. And it's just kind of a peak of sharp fruit flavor with some of that mixed culture acidity that's coming from the fruit. But it's not enough time to develop and really round that out on your palate and, and give you the opportunity as well to see like, okay, where is this going to go? So you take it off the skins and you're in barrel and you're like, all right, how is this going to evolve in the, in the bottle as well? And then you can do that final blend, that final touch up to be like, cool, this is exactly where we want it. And that's where it's going to kind of stay. And I shouldn't say that no Lambic producers do because some are, and, and there's a, a wide variety on that. Um, you know, but, but nonetheless, that's a, it's interesting that you all focus on doing it that way. Let's talk about that sour blonde beer that you also, that becomes another one of the pillars of these in addition to that, that Brett. Um, you, that one's a Lambic inspired beer with a, a turbid, at least turbid-ish mash. Talk to me about that, Matt. Yeah, so we, um, um, like you said, turb, turbid, um, pseudo turbid mash is what we call it. And so it's, it's kind of got a lambic. Um, Cause you're still brewing this as somebody else's brew house and they're going to have to use the equipment that the, they have for you to brew. Totally. On. And, and, and even though we want to be as authentic as we're able and we, and the, and the, the flavors and the final product is what we're shooting for. I still don't want to be in the brew house for 12, 14, 16 right. hours or something. Weird nor, like do, that. nor do our brewery partners want us in their brew house That's for right. 14 hours right. or two days. No. Right. And, and, and <laughs> at least they make you run, you know, brew the batch then. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's right. It's not their labor. So, so as I said, we're inspired by the Belgian traditions, and that includes the lambic beers um, yeah, of Brussels and, and the surrounding area. And so, I, w- I was inspired by uh, Jeff Sparrow's book, Wild Brews. Um, I knew him from my time in Chicago, and he lays out kind of uh, here's how they do it at Cantillon and other breweries like that. Um, he, he interpreted what he learned when writing the book, and you know we go with that uh, you know forty percent wheat, sixty percent two rowers, somewhere in there. Um, oh, you even use their messed up uh, yeah, yeah, 40, sure, 60, sure. 40 recipe. Okay, <laughs> yeah, totally. It, it's about that. I, actually, ours <laughs> might be more like uh, sixty-seven, thirty-three, or something like that. But sure, it doesn't matter too much. A lot, lot of unmalted wheat in it. Um, the neat thing about that too is I've got a good friend who's north of Eugene who grows wheat, and we can just I can go to his farm and grab it. It's just in bags and. <laughs> Don't have to get that from one of our suppliers. So some more local uh, terroir. Um, and then we'll do this little step mash, um, trying to get build this proteinaceous um, thing. One of the problems is on a two-vessel brew house, we've, one of our brew houses we use is two-vessel. Um, another one is three-vessel. And if you could build it yourself, one day if we build a brew house, we'll set up our system so that we can move liquid around to heat it up, bring it back. So I can't do everything that I want to. Yeah. Um, and that includes you know moving the mash over, boiling the mash, doing these things. So basically what I do is um, mash in two parts. You, I, I take about 25% of it. Um, I put it through a protein rest and step that up um, with hot water. And without really Vorloffing, I just pull that turbid stuff. Out. Actually, what I do before that is um, heat it up really fast to kill the enzymatic activity and get as much of that sort of cloudy, yeasty, mucky stuff into my kettle. And then I'll do the second mash right on top of that, kind of at higher um, temperatures in the you know 158, something like that, to build some dextrins in the malt. The whole purpose of this is to, um, two purposes really, to give some nutrition for um, the yeast's long, uh, yeast and bacteria's long um, uh, time chewing away, because we know we're giving it a bad environment to live in anyway. And then two is build mouthfeel and body. Um, right. Our beers that are mixed cultures, if we shoot for no sugar left in them because then it's easier to bottle condition when you know where you're starting from and the Brett won't take it. Um, something that has a little residual sugar left and make a bottle bomb. So we want everything to get down to zero. But when you do that, you can often have these just like 
insipid, boring beers, which, you know, can work, like Brian said, for fruit, but um, by themselves, there just isn't enough mouthfeel. They, they almost taste watery. Mm. And so I think that wheat and any adjuncts we add in there, we might add some oats in there, flaked oats as well. We want to build body into a zero Plato beer. Uh, and it's challenging, but I think our little... Um, and it took us a couple of years to do this. I mean, when we first started, it's like that was our you know, we were doing single infusion mashes on these beers and then we'd, we'd get it to the final product after fruit. And you're just like, man, this is so just like, there's nothing to chew on. It's just acid and fruit. And it was just, it really kind of forced us to go to format to experiment on this process and to dial this in. And it's, I, you know, it's gotten way better. I mean, it's, you can have zero Plato beers that are still very full bodied and are complex and, and not just like one dimensional. Yeah. And I think when people talk about the, you know, the history of that turbid mash in Lambic breweries, they, oh, you don't need to do that anymore. And, and maybe you don't, but we've found that we do from what we were making to what we're making now. And I think when you drink a, um, a Lambic beer from Belgium, you're getting some of the, that, that flavor profile they built is from the malt, the, the, the brew house work that they did one, two or three years ago. Um, you know, where does it go at, you know, from that brew house then into your fermentation process? So we, um, Brian, maybe you want to talk about the mixed culture that we typically add and sort of how we ferment that. Yeah. So that's probably where it stops being Lambic inspired sure, because we right. don't have it. Yeah. We don't have a cool ship. We've just started experimenting with, um, leaving totes over next door in their, in their orchard, um, overnight with some wort. And so that's a kind of a work in progress, but, um, we pitch a, a mixed culture. I mean, we just use, um, I'm blanking, uh, the Rosalair. Yeah. We just blend. use Rosalair mm-hmm. blend, um, on kind of all of it for the, for the blonde base. Yeah. And that gets us to where we need to. It's generally again in stainless, um, from primary ferment in stainless, we oxygenate it just the one day, the one time at knockout, um, primary and stainless for probably four or maybe five weeks and then goes down into Oak. And it's not really mature enough for me to put it onto fruit until probably seven, eight months after, mm-hmm. after it's been barreled down, um, to really know that a, the fermentation is pretty much done and to know kind of where it's, where it's headed, um, and then, yeah, from there it'll go on to either stay and become a blend of a mixed culture, just normal mixed culture farmhouse beer or go into a, our fruit blends. How do you decide, uh, you know, that the, which fruit a, a beer might go on to, or knowing that a fruit is coming in, you know, pick the, which beer out of your library now of, of fermenting or almost or finished beer, you know, that you're going to age something on with fruit? Yeah. So there, there's a, a, a bit of a, so f- this year, for example, we're, we're getting, um, I think seven fruits in and it's over the entire summer. Um, so it's really like some of them come in in clusters and then it's just like, okay, I know that we're going to be fermenting like 70 barrels of fruit beer. So I'm just going to make a 70 barrel blend of that base fruit beer. And then that's going to go, um, onto each different fruit. Oh, sure. Right? Um, and then it's very efficient. Yeah. And it's also just because again, we're kind of brewing these things in season and right, it's like, all right, right, this is this season. You know, fruits. you're going to have to have it all ready to go when, cause when all the fruit's going to start rolling in. Exactly. And it's like, this is this season's like fruit base and we're going to go through and we're going to kind of make that hmm. big base. And then that goes onto the fruit. And what's really cool is like none of our fruit beers taste the same. I mean, the, all the ones you've tried today have all been the identical yeah. fruit base and they're all, you know, cause the, the, we're not using pasteurized fruit or anything. It's like you're getting the terroir from the fruit as opposed to from the beer. Um, well, some from the beer, obviously, but the, uh, there's, 
some unique beers that you'll be like, okay, this is like really showcasing this flavor. I'm going to save these handful of barrels for this or, you know, um, but for the most part, it's just like the seasons fruit blend and then goes on to the various fruits. Sure. It makes sense. Um, any other, you know, uh, processes or, you know, ways that you finish, uh, after this process with, uh, with your sour beer? I think the biggest thing, you know, you can talk about Brian is sort of the wine grape thing we've gotten really excited about doing and, and how we've taken some wine processes and, and brought them into our brewery and, and used it with a lot of our fruit now, not just wine grapes. Yeah, totally. So, um, Doug always gives me a hard time. Our other partner gives me a hard time. He's always just like, you just wish you were making wine. And I'm like, well, yeah, kind of. Um, so we get a handful of varieties in a year. Um, and we really just are trying to do really cool expressions of, of these wine beer hybrids. And that's something that Matt did for the first time when we were at Oakshire. And that was like, that was like the one sour beer that we made there that I was just like, this is it. I want to make wine beers forever. And if I could have a brewery that only made wine beers and would sell enough to work, I would absolutely do that. Cause it's my totally absolute favorite style to do. Um, but a lot of it is like just, just wineries have been doing this forever. Like don't need to reinvent the wheel. And so if we, we can, can really control mouthfeel and tannin structure based on how much skin contact you have. Right. So you can have a red variety and just do a super light skin contact. Like we did a, um, Pinot Noir Blanc beer. That's one of my favorites we've done. And that was Pinot Noir, but we had a, um, we just did a really, really gentle press on it and had it on the skins with super gentle press for like 12 hours and then pulled it off and then fermented just on that juice. And that was a really fun beer. Um, and then for the bulk, like we're drinking raindrops on roses right now, which is our Pinot Noir beer. Um, that is, I mean, it's just, you're making wine. So it's, it's, we go up, we, we get whole cluster fruit, um, from next door at King estate. It's all biodynamic, awesome Pinot Noir. And then it gets crushed, destemmed. Um, we bring it down here, crushed, destemmed. It goes into our, t- our open top, uh, fruit tanks. We knock beer out on top of it. It gets punched downs twice a day. Um, and until fermentation's dry and then we let the cap form at the top, we rack off the skins. Um, it goes into malolactic fermentation, just like you would in a winery. And we treat it. I mean, I, we just treat it like a Pinot Noir the whole process. And that's been a really, really cool, um, thing that we've done and we've been gotten some recognition for it too at, at JBF for our wine beers. And that's been like kind of a awesome pet project for us. And then we'll also at the end, you asked, um, how we bottle them. So we'll, we'll use, um, for the most part, we'll use a simple sugar as our, as our priming for bottle conditioning, but we've done some really cool stuff where we'll save Pinot Gris juice from the year prior and bottle condition with that mm. we've bottle conditioned with like Muscat juice to give it a really tropical, uh, fruit forward that ass little ad. Um, in the, in for bottle conditioning. And, and there's just like so many cool things we can do, especially with, with our neighbors being so friendly to us that they let me go up there and use their presses and their <laughs> crusher decemmers and their forklifts and things. It's I'm spoiled. <laughs> Thanks King estate. You're great. <laughs> awfully nice. Take advantage of, uh, you know, uh, of that, uh, closeness yeah. right there, right there. Well, let's, uh, let's zoom out and, uh, you know, what's the big picture look like? for ale song what's the what's the near-term goal and what's the long-term goal what's success look like and uh how will you know when you've achieved it or maybe you have working well, less than 60 hours a week that's all I yeah <laughs> <laughs> goal number one <laughs> goal number two is is we want to continue to grow our club um we love our our local fans uh and, and actually all over the country of 22 states that we can get beer to really? um through our club yeah it's it's not actually direct shipment it's it tavor helps us out with that mm. tavor the company up in washington um, who does direct to consumer sales. 
Um, but we can ship all over Oregon. So we have Oregonians who are in our club. Um, and we have a good number of people who really support us here. And we like the direct-to-consumer model. Um, that being said, we're in several states and several countries, a small little amount. Um, but we don't need to grow that so much. We want people to come and see this property that you're sitting at. We want people to experience beer on our patio um, and, and really taste what we have grown here. Yeah, the, the club is just the heart of what we do. And it's it's like... It's so much fun at the club releases because we're we work so hard on these four beers and and why we decided to release four of these beers at the same time every quarter, it's hard <laughs> and it's a lot of work to get all these things together. Especially after I told you that I tweak them up until the very end and it's a uh, it's a bit of a um, yeah it's just it's just a lot of logistics. But it's so fun to work so hard in the cellar and on everything we do because we do we we do things the hard way and it's so inefficient how we do stuff compared to like big production breweries and whatever. And it's so satisfying being out here and seeing the, the, the patio just full of people that most of whom are not beer geeks. Like they're not into beer. I'd mm-hmm. say the majority of our club are like, they'll, they stumbled upon us or someone gave them a bottle of us or the amount of people we have come into our tasting room that are like, Oh, can I see your wine list? Cause I don't like beer. And then we ask them, we're like, Oh, well, what beers have you had? And they're like, um, you know, American light lager and Northwest IPA. And you're like, okay, you didn't like either of those. Well, we have a whole bunch of variety of flavors that are pretty good. And then you're like, well, what kind of wine do you like? Let me pivot that way. And like, here's a, a stone fruit sour beer and here's a whatever. And we can just, we have this awesome community of people that are just so into what we're doing and, and the farmers that we work with and everything. So it's really like seeing our club grow and seeing more people get bought into this community that we've bought into, you know, buying saisons and barrel aged sour beers yeah. like it's it's really awesome that that's growing and that's supporting us and our releases we get a thousand to twelve hundred people because people can bring guests a certain number depending on which level of the club you are and so we we over a six-day period we get over a thousand people here that we do food pairings with you get your flight you get each of the beers and you get food pairings that we prepare for them um, we just came from a meeting of tasting this uh, august releases food and beer and um, it's going to be another great one. So we just love doing that. We love food. We love people. Um, we love making great beers. And, and we can do that right here on our property. That is beautiful. And it's a great place to bring this to a close. For nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. Fill like a pro with Pro Fill can fillers from Pro Brew. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Nano Brewers try fermentous dry ale and lager yeasts and flexible 100 gram packaging. Euro Pills from Canada Malting Company is made from the finest overseas low protein barley available and arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality. Of course, we depend on you subscribing to our magazine when that directly supports our ability to bring you this podcast each week. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, let us know this content matters to you, and of course, enjoy more great content from us through that channel, along with recipes and all other sorts of not-to-miss content. Um, Brian... Matt, if people want to learn more about Alesong, where do they find you? Uh, Alesongbrewing.com. Yep, and we're on all the uh, social media channels. Um, Alesong Brewing at Instagram. Um, we got a Facebook page and all those good things. I think we even have Twitter. I don't think we tweet much, but um, I'm the only Is that still old. around? Uh, yes, I still <laughs> use it. I'm the old guy in the company. <laughs> yeah, Alesongbrewing.com and then slash join if you want to check out the club. But come out come out to the we have a, a tasting room in downtown eugene at fish street public market um which is awesome we have some great obviously great lineup of beers there and it's a cool patio but if you want to come experience it you got to come out to the country and see where see why we did it in the first place it's it's pretty awesome having a beer out here 
Brian Coombs, Matt Van Wyk, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. cheers. Thank, thank you. you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.